On your Wednesday episode of Locked On Raptors, we're opening up the mailbag once again to answer your Raptors-related questions ahead of training camp, which gets going in just under two weeks. We'll get into it. We're going to talk about the biggest weaknesses on this Raptors team. We're going to talk about the bench. We're going to talk about so many other things. So let's just get to it here on your mailbag edition of Locked On Raptors on a Wednesday. Thanks for being here. Oh, because when I shot, I expected to make it. So I don't shoot kind of miss. You are Locked On Raptors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on? Welcome to episode number 1242, 1243, something of Locked On Raptors for Wednesday, September the 14th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter, as always, at WoodleySean. You can find the show at Locked On Raptors, and you can follow, subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts for free. It's free. Why wouldn't you do it? Just go to the YouTube uh, or go to the various audio apps. We're on, again, in video form every day as well. Subscribe wherever you get your shows, uh, whether you're watching or listening, and it's very much appreciated. And it's also appreciated that you make us your first listen each and every day. Three days a week right now. We'll be back to daily the week of the 26th as Media Day will kick off, and we'll have a daily podcast for you once the month comes to a close. With that, however, let's get to today's show. We are going to run through a whole bunch of mailbag questions, as we've done a lot on Wednesdays throughout the offseason this uh, this summer, just because, hey, mailbags are great. We get to kind of go all over and sprawl and hit a bunch of different things, so we'll do that today. And uh, just a heads up, tomorrow I have a wonderful guest, Imana Don from Yahoo Sports. She's going to pop on and we're going to talk about some sort of big picture Raptors topic, and next week... I'll be running a series of episodes with a whole bunch of the Locked On hosts from the Eastern Conference teams. Ten minutes a pop, getting the lowdown on those teams going into the season, trying to get to all of the top ten or so teams in the Eastern Conference to, uh, you know, be comprehensive and all of that. All right, let's get to it now. Mailbag questions. This one comes from our pal Dan Grant. What is the biggest flaw with the current roster, and how do they attempt to overcome it stylistically? It's a good question. Look, this is not a perfect basketball team. It's very much a work in progress, of course, and it's encouraging that even as they're a work in progress, they won 48 games last season and have, I think, the pieces and the pedigree and all the different ingredients to go and win 50 games this season if things break right. But, you know, obviously, things are not 100% perfect all the time. This was not a very good offensive team last season. This wasn't even a very good, efficient team scoring in transition. They just did it so much that they were able to kind of rack up the score, and it worked for them. You know, their defense, of course, we talk a lot about how they're over-aggressive at times, and maybe it'd be nice to see them kind of lean on the defensive might of a lot of their guys who might be a little bit more capable of switching or just sticking man-to-man and, you know, not throwing all this extra attention in various guys' ways and forcing rotation and forcing the team to have to recover. They're very good at that part. They're long, they're fast, they're rangy, they know what they're doing. But obviously, that opens up mistakes. The more different things you have to do to execute a defensive possession, it's going to cause some problems. So you can look at that as the biggest weakness. I think, however, the defense doesn't worry me so much. I think they're going to... You know, under another year of Nick Nurse kind of coaching these guys along, 
basically the same crew of dudes plus Otto Porter Jr. who just played the Warriors defense and is a very good defender in his own right. Not too worried about how he's going to acclimatize to what the Raptors do. I think they're going to be a very good defense this year. And I do think we'll see a little bit of evolution when it comes to how aggressive they are, when they pick and choose their spots to be overly aggressive. And I think we'll probably see a pretty good top seven, top six, maybe even top five defense from the Raptors this season. I think that's sort of where they're going to butter their bread. On offense, still a little bit concerned. And I think it really is hinging a lot on internal development to just sort of inject some space and some breathing room into the offense for guys like Pascal Siakam and Scotty Barnes and Fred Van Vliet and all this. I think, you know, it's not even so much that I'm concerned about shot creation because I think they've got some guys who can do it. Like, we know that Pascal can get his own looks off. We know that Scotty is sort of in the burgeoning phases of becoming that type of player as well. Fred Van Vliet is a pull-up threat. We know that. He had a little bit of a mid-range bag last season. Even if he's not great scoring at the rim, he has some other areas of the floor that he can hurt you from. We know Gary Trent Jr. can bail you out if you need him to late in the clock. Um, you know, after that, it gets a little bit more tricky, and you probably want a few more guys who can work in a little bit, bit of creation. But I do think it's going to be sort of a marriage of development from the creation side of things for guys like Scotty, for a guy like Gary Trent, for a guy like OG, um, and, and, you know, maybe some guys off the bench too. Maybe we see... A guy like Precious Achua kind of expand there. Maybe Malachi Flynn finds his way back into the mix. Maybe Delano Banton's playing more, and he's a guy who's being asked to create things and start possessions. It's going to be a mix of internal development in that department, along with the internal development when it comes to shooting that we've talked about basically all offseason. They didn't go and address the three-point shooting in some you know massive, dramatic way. They got Otto Porter Jr., which is huge for sure. It's very important. But he's probably going to play like 22 minutes a night. He might not play all 82 games. He's someone who's had a lot of injury stuff and he's had to be monitored and managed and things like that. And so you're not counting on Otto Porter Jr. on his own to fix the three-point problems of the team and to inject that extra space into the half court. But I do think if you get some upticks from a guy like Precious Achua, a little bit more of a sort of steady, season-long three-point reliability, you see a return to form for Chris Boucher, where he kind of lands in the middle of his 2021 season and last season. Like, I, I think there's a world in which there's enough shooting on this roster, coupled with the expansion of a couple of, a couple of guys, and also just like the knowledge that Pascal Siakam is a problem that defenses have to send extra attention to. If you recall, the sort of one of my favorite stats of the offseason or of last season was the NBA court optics number looking at Pascal Siakam and how he pulled off like a really difficult season last year because of the things he was seeing as an offensive player. He was doubled the sixth most frequently of any player in the NBA last year, and the Raptors scored at a 1.2 points per possession clip in those situations, and that was with a lot of guys out of the lineup, a lot of three-point shooting unreliability and things like that. He, he, the Raptors scored at the same rate as the Mavericks did when Luka Doncic was doubled a similar amount of times, and the only guy who really you know, powered his team to a higher scoring clip when double teamed at a high frequency over 30%, which is about 10 guys in the league last year, was Giannis Antetokounmpo, who the Bucks scored like 1.25 points per possession or whatever when he was double teamed because he's incredible and he's a problem. So you know, like if you're in the company of Giannis and Luka, that's where Pascal Siakam was last year when it came to being double teamed. He was better than Jason Tatum dealing with doubles, better than Kyrie Irving, better than Kevin Durant, all these guys they did not score, their teams did not score at the same clip as the Raptors did when Pascal had the ball in his hands and he saw extra attention. 
And so we already know that teams fear Pascal Siakam, the fact that he can blow by anybody, the fact that he can spin move your ass into oblivion and get to the rim when he wants. They have to sort of wall him off and keep him from getting to the rim, and that's why he's had to sort of develop that mid-range counter. But he's got all these counters now to the point that if you surround him with good shooting, reliable cutting, things like that, it's going to be really difficult for other teams to slow down this half-court offense when it's going at full steam. It's when you get into those lineups where there's two, maybe three non-shooters where things get a little bit more cluttered and you're going to have to sort of survive on that very, you know, aggressive defense that's forcing transition and steals and scoring on the run as opposed to, you know, relying on the half-court to be a big source of points. But I do think if you sort of couple some micro-improvements with a whole bunch of guys, the sort of domino effects of that will be shown, and I think the fact that Pascal's already as good as he is kind of gives them a pretty good head start, and they're in position to really capitalize if they do get that internal growth from various guys. So, yeah, I think the half court certainly is the thing I have sort of my red flags raised about the most, and even more so if they continue to sort of play this hyper-aggressive defense where they're expending a ton of energy, they're forcing steals, and really trying to rely on transition to be their bread and butter, relying on offensive boards. I wonder if they can kind of just divvy up where they expend their energy a little bit more effectively and economically. You know, don't spend so much energy on, on, on the defensive end. Rely on the fact that you have some internal growth in your half-court players. It's a score in the half-court. You don't have to, you know, kind of game the system and play sort of gimmick ball like they did at times last year. I do think there's a pathway to improving that half-court offense. Do I think it's going to be a top 10 half-court offense in the league? Probably not, but do I think it can be like 12th, 13th, 15th, something like that? Absolutely, with I guess some you know potential for a top 10 finish if things really, really go well and you have some like career shooting seasons from various guys and you see a pop from Precious Achua and, and all that stuff. So yeah, that's the biggest concern for sure, but I don't think it's going to derail them necessarily and I do think they're, the avenues for internal improvement are very much there and that seems to be what the Raptors have kind of viewed would be the answer to this question going all the way back to the start of the offseason. We're going to continue on here and get into more of your mailbag questions. We've got questions about uh, surprise players this coming season, uh, you know, players who might improve the most this year. We'll get to that in just one second. But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at betonline.net, your number one source for all your pro and college football betting needs and sports info this season. Find all the latest football league developments, game matchups, news, and podcasts, including this year's opening week games, I guess second week games as well, because opening week is behind us now. Bet Online is also your continued source for all your sports wagering information, including live betting, esports, scores, futures. Maybe you want to put a little scratch down on the Raptors hitting the over. They tend to do that. It's like the thing that they do and they're known for. Go put some money down on the Raptors hitting that over and you will be happy. And go and inform yourself on all the other futures bets. You want to go put some money on the Denver Nuggets or some other team to go in the title? You can absolutely go ahead and do that. It's the fastest and easiest way to check it all your favorite sports and events. You got MLB, the playoffs are coming up there, MMA, boxing, golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in the action. Bet online is where the game starts. Before we dive back into your mailbag questions, a reminder of the Locked On NBA Top 50 players, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Giannis. Which NBA player moves the betting lines the most this season? Locked On and Bet Online odds makers present the NBA Top 50 Most Valuable Players starting on September the 19th. Find it on Locked On NBA, wherever you get your podcasts, and on YouTube. And I have to say, I've seen the list. 
they've done some Raptors dirty, and I will be on those shows talking about how, in fact, they have done those Raptors dirty, so keep an eye out for that. Um, I don't like to be the screaming, angry Raptors fan who's like, respect my players, or anything like that, because I think that's odious and tiresome, but sometimes things are so egregious that you have to kind of get angry, so keep an eye out for that next week. That is a tease, baby. All right, let's get to some more questions here. This question here comes from... The Matthew T asking, which player do you think will be a pleasant surprise this season? And so I guess this question is kind of all very much tied to your expectations, right? Like, am I going to be pleasantly surprised if Scotty Barnes comes out and averages 19, 9, and 5? Not really, because I kind of think that might happen anyway. If he goes and averages 27, yeah, pleasantly surprised for sure. But I think that's probably unrealistic and unattainable. Whereas, you know, I think the bump that I'm expecting for Scotty Barnes and responsibility and efficiency and all that, like, I, I don't think that's going to terribly surprise me. He's really freaking good and very exciting and seems to learn how to play, how to be good at basketball quite quickly as he goes along. So I'm not too worried about that. Or, or you know, not, not penciling Scotty Barnes in as a pleasant surprise necessarily. I, I think the guy for me who I kind of have to circle here, and again, it's all tied to expectations. I should go to the person for whom I have the lowest expectations, and so I'll say Malachi Flynn. Do I think Malachi Flynn is necessarily going to become a regular rotation piece this year? Probably not. I just, I don't really see it with him right now. Again, the career true shooting under 50% is very concerning for a guy whose whole thing is that he's a good shot maker and a good pick and roll operator. Obviously, the latter of those two skills, he's never really gotten a chance to flex those muscles because the Raptors are not a pick and roll heavy team. And frankly, they shouldn't be reorienting the way they play to cater to the skills of a guy who's their 12th man. And so I'm not mad that they're not a pick and roll heavy team it's just the unfortunate reality that Malachi Flynn has not really fit into the plans here as they've altered this sort of team building concept in the last couple of seasons since he was drafted that said he had some moments last year that stretch after Fred Van Vliet got hurt at the all-star game and Malachi Flynn came in played like four or five really strong games before getting hurt it was super unfortunate Kind of derailed the rest of his year. He never really got back into regular favor with Nick Nurse. He had those couple moments of defense in the playoffs against James Harden and Tyrese Maxey that were nice, but obviously he never kind of found a regular gig with the Raptors again after that point. You know, those were promising games. We saw some stuff there from Malachi Flynn. I think he can hang defensively, which is obviously kind of job number one for any player who wants to play for Nick Nurse on a basketball team. Like, you have to defend your ass off. You have to be able to play within their defensive machine. And he can probably do that. I think I've seen enough to suggest that he could actually do that. But the offensive stuff... Going back to the first question, sort of what is the biggest concern about this team, the biggest weakness, the half-court offense, Malachi Flynn has not been a solution to that at any point during his couple years with the Raptors. Like, he's had his moments here and there, but he's been really inefficient on catch-and-shoot threes. He hasn't really had much of a pull-up threat to him. He doesn't really have a whole lot of downhill to his game, really. A lot of it's just sort of deferential, and he'll just sort of pass it off or whatever, you know, it's it's obviously a byproduct. He's not always playing with players that he can kind of be the sort of leader of. Like, he's often the worst player on the floor, and so he's kind of taking his cues from elsewhere. But, I, you know, I haven't seen it yet with Flynn. But perhaps if he gets some run, if Fred goes down, if the Raptors are really concerted to try to bring Fred VanVleet's minutes total down to, like, 32 a game, maybe Malachi Flynn figures in as a solution there. And I think there's a world in which Malachi Flynn becomes, like, a 15-minute-a-night 
steady-ish rotation piece who plays 65 games or something like that and has reasonable results, and that, to me, would be a pleasant surprise because I do not expect that. That is not sort of the bar for expectation that I've set for Malachi Flynn. So it's sort of a damning with faint praise thing, but I think because I've kind of almost given up on Malachi Flynn being a piece of this team and, and sort of part of the answer going forward... I am very low with the expectations, which means it's very likely that some sort of pleasant surprise development could sneak in with Malachi Flynn. So let's uh, continue on here. This next question here comes from Cameron Hilton, and I just kind of want to touch on this because it relates to a team that has a whole lot of guys that I just don't think the Raptors need to be going after right now. Questions from Cameron Hilton. Will Larry Markkinen floating around with Larry Markkinen floating around? Is there a fit with him as a big who can shoot, or is his D not good enough? This is kind of my issue with all of these jazz guys. The guys who, for the last three years, have been clowned because they, even with Rudy Gobert, the best defensive center of his generation, have been unable to defend anybody in the playoffs. It's not, you know, like, Donovan Mitchell obviously carries a big burden here, but, like, Bojan Bogdanovich, not a good defender. Jordan Clarkson, not a good defender. Larry Markkinen, not on the Jazz, obviously, prior to now. So, like, this is, he's not part of the plan, the problem here. But, like, same idea. Not a good defender, never has been. And I just don't see the Raptors going and pursuing guys who don't check the biggest box that they often need checked by guys they bring in. Thad Young, Otto Porter Jr., new additions who defend their asses off. That's fine. Like, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I just feel like you go and trade for a guy like Bojan Bogdanovic and Nick Nurse will be pulling his hair out because he's just getting blown up defensively in all sorts of different ways. And the three-point shooting he provides is very nice, to be sure, but it just doesn't seem to line up. That doesn't even get into the financials of trying to make any of these deals happen. Bogdanovich makes like 19 million bucks a year. You have to go with like Ken Birch plus like a whole bunch of weird salaries in there to maybe make it work. It just, unless you're including... Chris Boucher or Thad Young or, or someone with a more substantial salary, you're just not getting Bojan Bogdanovic for a reasonable co cost. And it just doesn't feel like a move they need right now. Yes, they could use some shooting, but I think I'd rather wait and see if their bet on internal development in that department comes through and then make a play at the deadline for some shooting if you desperately need it. I don't think you got to go and make a move now for Bojan Bogdanovic when you're not even really sure if you desperately need that shooting skill set when you know he's not going to check any of the defensive boxes that this team's looks that this team looks for. Same thing goes for Jordan Clarkson. It just none of those Jazz guys are in any way interesting to me and I don't know why they keep on popping up and Larry Markkinen would certainly be in that same conversation as well. You know, nice season last year for a Cavs team that kind of put him in a perfect spot to not get destroyed with you know, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley cleaning up all his messes behind him. But like, I was around for watching Andrea Bargnani play small forward. I don't need that again in the form of Larry Markkinen. Like, wish him all the best in Utah, but no thanks. I, I think I'm pretty good on that. And I, he just wouldn't play when it matters, right? Like, it just would never happen. If you're going to go and get some shooting as well... It should be a guard or someone who can handle the ball a little bit. Like, that's not what Markkinen's bag is. That's not really what Bojan's bag is either. He's got a little bit of drive and, and dribble and drive to his game, but, like, not a ton. And you would rather have the ball in other guys' hands than either of those guys. So, no, I, I don't think it really makes a ton of sense. And the financials of it all make it really tricky as well. So I'm out on all the Jazz guys officially. I will not be commenting until, uh, you know, <laughs> later in the year when Malik Beasley becomes a guy the Raptors are after or something like that. Um, let's continue on here. 
Let's get to uh, another quick question. This one comes from Jay Rosales asking, which former Raptors did we not appreciate enough when they were with the team? My answer to this is always Anthony Parker. Always, 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 always Anthony Parker. He was awesome. He was such a good player for those actually good Raptors teams, or at least good Raptors team in 06, 07. Um, And my sort of grand take on Anthony Parker is he's a better player than Morris Peterson ever was for the Raptors. Mo Pete, great dude. Everyone loves Mo Pete. The circus shot, score with the headband on his eyes, fighting Vince Carter. We love Mo Pete, but he's not a very, like, he did not drive a lot of winning. He was on some pretty bad teams, and he got a lot of favor because he was around a long time, which at the time was a novelty for Raptors fans. And Anthony Parker was everything that kind of people thought Mo Pete was. He was like a legitimate 3 and D player. He was a fantastic three-point shooter, really strong, stout defender, just an absolute steal of a signing. One of the best moves outside of, you know, probably Jose Calderon, probably the best move that Brian Colangelo made during his time running the team. Um, You know, Anthony Parker, man, uh, (laughs) Naismith Cup legend as well when he hit the buzzer beater against the Raptors for Tel Aviv before the Raptors brought him over. Um, yeah, Anthony Parker, always the most underrated Toronto Raptor. He should be considered one of like the top 25 Raptors of all time. I have him, I believe, in my top 25 of all time in my running ranking every Raptors series. TBD on where and when that will be coming out this year, but either way, Anthony Parker, good times. Uh, totally underappreciated, and he should be viewed as like one of the best wings the Raptors have ever employed, which is crazy in a way because you know it's like again damning with faint praise a little bit but he was very very good in his short time with the team better than Mo Pete that's the that's the the truth I'm sorry to break your heart out there fellow Mo Pete fans um let's continue on here we're gonna get to a couple more questions to close out the show in just one second but first I want to tell you about Locked On Blue Jays the Blue Jays, baby, they're cruising. They're they're moving on. They're hitting huge late game hits and home runs and stuff like that. They're kicking ass against the Rays right now. Go listen to Locked On Blue Jays as they push towards the postseason of the wild card round. And uh, go check it out. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, both on YouTube and on your audio apps. All right, let's round it out. A couple more mailbag questions to get to to close this show. This one here comes from Jay. Hypothetical. If the teams in the East improve as expected and there are six teams with 50 wins or more and the Raptors are not one of them, can you see a scenario where the season is considered a success and that the team is definitely improved if that's the situation? Yes. The Eastern Conference is going to be a monster this season. It's going to be very, very good. And you can't control that the Cavs went and got Donovan Mitchell or that the Nets found a way to keep things together and keep one of the best players alive in-house, that the Sixers and Celtics loaded up in the offseason, that the Bucks have Giannis, that the Heat are a regular season wins machine. If all those six teams go and win 50-plus games and the Raptors are stuck at 47-48, I don't think that's some grand failure for the Raptors. It's just, hey, heavy competition, it's tough. And if you win that many games in that loaded in Eastern Conference, I still think that's something to hang your hat on. Of course, it depends on the manner in which they get to those 47-48 wins. Do they get waxed by all the good teams and only beat the bad teams? That might feel a little bit disappointing, especially considering their performance against good teams last year. Do they suffer through a bunch of injury that leads them there? If that's the case, disappointing that they were injured, but also what can you do about that? That's probably going to be the difference for some team in the East, probably multiple teams in the East, and injuries are part of life. It would suck, but I don't think it would be some sort of grand failure if they win 47 games, having missed a whole bunch of man games to injury. 
you know, I think obviously it depends too. Do they make the play-in? Are they the seventh seed? Do they get a home play-in date, win that, and make it to the playoffs? That would probably be, you know, a way to sort of save things as well. If they, you know, don't make the playoffs at all and miss and lose the play-in, then you'd probably view it as a bit more of a failure for sure. Um, but like, it's a loaded Eastern Conference. I still think the Raptors are going to finish in the top six. I, I think one of those teams is going to be vulnerable, whether it's the Cavs taking time to gel, whether it's the Nets just being the Nets, whether it's the Heat kind of falling apart because they're old and creaky and maybe preserving themselves for later in the year. Like the Raptors are a team that wins regular season games and they tend to defy these sort of seasons from hell outside of the Tampa season, which was a hell for all sorts of different uncontrollable reasons. But for the most part, they win a lot of games because they kind of maximize what they have on hand. And I really think that they're going to do that again this season. I'm very bullish on this team. It doesn't change just because other teams in the East are very good. And I think that, you know, you, you sort of slot the Raptors into the 5-6 slot. I think that's a totally fair expectation. And if they don't hit it, then yeah, it kind of depends on the context as to whether or not that's a failure. But like, they get to 47-48 wins and they've performed well against good teams. And they've had internal to growth from guys like Precious and Scotty Barnes and whoever else you're looking for growth from. If they get some deep guys on the bench to pop, Delano Banton's a rotation player. Malachi Flynn figures it out. Like, all of these things can come into making it feel like a successful season, even if the quality of the Eastern Conference suggests that, okay, maybe this was a little bit less in terms of achievements than it was last year. And also, I think it's worth keeping in mind, like, the Raptors are still kind of early in this curve, right? Yes, they have guys who are coming up to the ends of their deals, and they're going to have to figure out Pascal and Fred and kind of where they fit into the future, but they have Scotty Barnes, they have Precious Achua, they have a lot of young pieces on hand, and a lot of, like guys in their prime on hand, they're early in this window and they can take some time here as the rest of the East kind of ages out, they'll probably kind of be maturing right at that time. And so like this year for me is not make or break or anything like that. Again, I still think they're going to finish in the top six and be a very good team and probably win 50 games. But if they don't, I don't think it's doom and gloom. Of course, we'll have to see the context of it all to really determine that. But determine that. But I, I and there might be some changes that come as a result of it. But I think, Grant, like big picture, if they don't go and win 50 games this season and are the seventh best team in a team in a conference with nine good teams, I don't think that's some grand failure or anything like that. Let's get to one last question here. This one comes from Jake Horton. Are you concerned at all with the depth of the Raptors, or do you feel good about the state of the team in that sense? I go back and forth on this. I think the top nine is really good. Like, I have no issues with the nine-man rotation we're expecting to see. Having Ken Birch as your 10th man is pretty nice as well. I want to see what the deep bench guys can do, right? Like, it would be really, really cool if a guy like Justin Champagny or Delano Banton really popped this year, if Malachi Flynn figured it out and kind of landed back in a rotation, if one of these guys invited to camp, Wancho Hernan Gomez or whomever, Josh Jackson, finds a way to be a regular contributor, that'd be awesome. You know, the depth could be a problem if there's like two injuries, three injuries, then you're going to be kind of dipping in and really hoping these guys can pop. And if they don't, you're going to be in some trouble. But start of the season as it stands right now. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with the depth. I, I don't think, you know, it's they're not the who's the deepest team, the Clippers. They're not like <laughs> they have 15 players who are all NBA caliber or anything like that. But very few teams do. If you look around the league, there's a lot of teams that are kind of like seven guys deep, even like the Celtics, for example, especially with the Gallo injury. They're like seven or eight deep at best. And that's just kind of the way it goes in the NBA. And for them to have nine, 10 guys you kind of trust as regular NBA players with a few guys with the potential to pop, 
I think that's a totally fine place to go into the season. And, and if you need to address the depth of the deadline, you can go ahead and do that. No problem, usually. Uh, with that, I think we'll round it out. Actually, let's go with one more question here. This is a really fascinating one, kind of a big picture one that maybe we kind of expanded to a more broad episode at some point. But Jay Rich asks a really fascinating question. What would you rank as the top five qualities of a winning franchise? Where do the Raptors rank in the association, i.e. the above qualities? So, you know, one, I would say, you know, it, it does help probably to be in like a prime location. It doesn't always help for sure. Like the Lakers certainly have had their issues. The Knicks have not been great shakes, but like it's inarguably that inarguable that it's an inherent advantage to be in one of those major markets Miami obviously the Clippers the Nets like Chicago even like that that helps for sure I don't think it's number one but like the Raptors as far as how they relate in terms of market quality in terms of how they're viewed from around the league it's certainly better than it used to be I would imagine they used to be viewed as market number 30 on most people's destination list I would say they're probably like bordering top 10 at this point that doesn't mean you're going to go and sign a bunch of guys, but like people respect the market and all that. That's number one. I don't think it's the most important of all of them. I'm just listing five off in no particular order, but I do think that is undeniably part of the conversation. You can overcome not being in a good market with drafting a you know generational player or something like that, but for the most part, if you're in those big markets, you kind of have a leg up for a bunch of different reasons. The second, I would say, is ownership. Unfortunately, like, it's just kind of the deal. And we see around the league that bad owners can derail good things. Tillman Fertitta took over a really good thing there in Houston and within a couple years ran it into the ground. And he might have kind of backed himself into some very good fortune, which sucks. And he doesn't deserve it. But good job to the team down there, Raphael Stone. Um, you know, I, I, I think the Raptors, where they rank in ownership... It's hard to say because they kind of have this amorphous, nebulous ownership group owned, run by a couple of telecom companies. And we saw very recently that Ed Rogers, Captain Failson over there at Rogers, uh, you know, was maybe kind of trying to push for Masai Ujiri to not be brought back. When you have front office people meddling, that's a problem. I wouldn't say the Raptors have the best ownership group in the NBA. That said, for the most part, they've been pretty hands-off and kind of allowed the team to just sort of do what it does, realizing, I think, that when the Raptors are good, they are a cash cow, and so it behooves them to just kind of lay lay back and let Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster do their thing. So I would say they're probably kind of in the top 10 range in terms of ownership, for sure. Uh, you know, that that's it's, again, hard to say. All the billionaires are bad in their own various ways, but uh, at least the Raptors billionaires tend to sort of be out of the loop and not to, uh, you know, to not too many hands in the cookie jar, I guess what I, I would say. It's not like Mark Cuban or any of these other owners who just, like, impress their will upon their teams because they want to feel fancy and special and play with their big fancy toy. As far as the other three, I, you know, the next one I would say is probably player development, right? Like, what goes into your player development? You know, the, the Raptors are very good at that. The G League, obviously, has been a big investment for them. They have, you know, like sort of like an internal structure for how they bring guys along. And I think just based on results, they're probably like top five in the league when it comes to that. The Heat, of course, have been very good with that. The Spurs are always quite good with that. Um, but the Raptors are always right in that conversation as the teams with the best developmental staffs. And, like, the proof is in the pudding. Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, Fred Van Vliet, all these guys, low draft picks who became... Excellent, excellent players, all-stars in two cases, all-NBA guys in Siakam's case. Like, they've got a track record and propensity for developing guys. And so, yeah, they're probably top three in that. And that is a big reason, probably the biggest reason, why they are where they are right now. Number four, I would say is just patience. Just, like, letting things play out and not getting too 
you know, itchy with the trigger finger. You know, obviously the Raptors got a lot of luck when this kind of happened back in 2013 when they didn't trade Kyle Lowry because the Knicks chickened out and James Dolan got sad about Masai Ujiri owning him all the time. Like, yeah, that that was a, a lucky turn of circumstance, but I do think it kind of maybe brought in an organizational philosophy of being patient, letting things ride out, and sort of always sitting back and, and, and just sort of being maneuverable. And the Raptors have done that. And... and I think teams around the league, like when they get to a point where they sort of have, you know, run up against a brick wall, some teams just kind of pull the trigger and blow it up quick. Other teams maybe sort of try to reevaluate and figure things out. And the Raptors, I think, are very patient. They're very calculated. And and I would probably put them in the top three or four when it comes to patience. And that's the thing that's sort of afforded by good ownership, right? If good ownership realizes that things take time and you're not going to get instant gratification at all times, that makes it easier for them to justify letting a front office kind of figure things out and run the course. You also have patience kind of, in some ways, being a negative thing. Think about, say, the Thunder, for example, where they continue to kind of spin their wheels waiting for their prized teenager to take over and become their superstar, and maybe that's just never going to happen. Um, You know, again, I I have my own sort of personal biases against teams that uh, do the process-type tank. I think it sucks. I think it's, like, terrible for the NBA and awful to watch and terrible for fans and kind of a big slap in the face to fans, but... That's just me. Uh, I'm not in Oklahoma City. I don't really have to worry about it all that much. But I do think patience, in the right kind of sense, is very much one of the qualities that really good teams tend to have. And I guess the other thing is sort of the exact opposite of that, which is their like boldness. Like, are teams willing to be bold and make mistakes and potentially have stuff blow up in their face? You know, I don't think the Kawhi Leonard trade was necessarily as bold as people want to say, but it was certainly a bold move. And it wasn't like Masai was putting his job on the line when he made that deal, but it was certainly a, a big gamble for sure. Firing Dwayne Casey after winning Coach of the Year was also a pretty bold move as well, even if, you know, the Raptors certainly had their reasons. And I think you see teams like the Heat, for example, like they're all right with sort of maybe striking out on free agents, but they're going to try their darndest to make it happen whenever they can. Um, You know, I I think boldness and sort of an eagerness to sort of be in front of the curve a little bit and try to jump on things is probably one of those things. Look, these are not the only five things that matter. There's a million things that go into a franchise being very good. And, you know, obviously a lot of it's stuff that we don't even really have access to. How are the analytics staffs? And, you know, how are they staffed? How many people do they have on hand running this stuff? How do they use that data? Obviously, coaching staffs are very important. Um, You know, I think the patience thing when it comes to coaching is actually a pretty interesting thing because, you know, oftentimes we'll see the sort of wheel of coaches going in for two years in a place like Sacramento and then booted out. You can never establish anything. The Raptors have been the opposite of that ever since Messiah took over. Long run for Dwayne Casey. Now a pretty long run for, for... long run, that is, for Nick Nurse, it seems, is going to be on tap here. So, you know, that, that I think, is a thing that kind of, it all goes together. It all sort of adds together to sort of come together with one sort of grand vision of what a franchise is. But as far as, like, overall competence of organization, the Raptors are certainly in the top five. I, I think that would be pretty much a consensus around the world, is that, yeah, the Raptors, they kind of got that shit on lock they know what they're doing and um yeah i think that's hopefully that's a good answer to your question again there's some answer unanswerable elements of that question that are just sort of all sort of proprietary and behind the scenes and we can't quite put our finger on why some things work and why some things don't why some teams do what they do but for the most part yeah i, I think i've kind of hit on at least some of the qualities that good franchises have and share 
With that, we'll round up the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate you jumping uh, on to watch the video or listen to the audio today. We'll be back again tomorrow with Amana Don from Yahoo Sports. That's going to be a ton of fun as well. You can find me on Twitter at Woodley Sean. You can subscribe uh, and support the show and also comment on the show. Leave us comments. Leave us uh, all that stuff on the YouTube. It's much appreciated when you engage with the show and all of that good stuff. And we will talk to you again on Thursday with another episode of Locked On Raptors. Go make your second listen of the day, Locked On NBA. And until then, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.